Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, thank you all so much for, for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by IWP, the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to us, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs in Washington, D.C., and now online. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us and our mission to form leaders in the conduct of ethical statecraft and leadership, please visit www.iwp.edu. Each year, IWP recognizes our country's Constitution Day with a special event. And this year, we are honored to present this lecture, co-sponsored by the Jack Miller Center. And first, it's my pleasure to introduce our host from IWP, Dr. Joseph Wood. Dr. Wood is a retired Air Force Colonel. His military career included operational and command fighter assignments, faculty duty in the Department of Political Science at the Air Force Academy, and service at the Pentagon as speechwriter for the Chief of Staff and Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force in the Joint Staff and in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. He served in the White House as Special Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President with responsibility for all policy involving Europe, Eurasia, Africa, and defense issues. After retiring from the Air Force, Dr. Wood was appointed a member of the Career Senior Executive Service at NASA headquarters. He was a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund and has taught in a variety of graduate seminars in Europe on classical moral and political thought and the distinctions between ancient and modern thinking. At IWP, Dr. Wood teaches sources of American political thought and Western moral, moral and political thought, and he received his PhD from the School of Philosophy at Catholic University. And now to welcome and introduce our speaker. We're delighted to have you. Dr. Christopher Burkett is Associate Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for Undergraduate Students at Ashland University. He is editor of Ashbrook's 50 Core American Documents and has written on the American founding, progressivism, and American foreign policy. And in that vein, we are certainly delighted to also note that IWP and Ashland University just recently signed a partnership program to continue our mutual efforts on international affairs. And so we are absolutely delighted to, uh, to welcome them into our official cohort after many years of an enjoyed relationship and shared mission affinity. So thank you, Dr. Burkett, and I will turn it over to you. Well, th thank you very much, Danielle, for that introduction. And I'm also very pleased about the agreement that's been reached. This is uh, a fantastic program, and I do think it meshes well with the way we approach the study of these things at, um, at Ashbrook and Ashland University as well. So, and I'd especially like to thank the Institute of World Politics uh, and the Jack Miller Center for sponsoring the event. So I'm very honored to be here. Um, Constitution Day, uh, along with the 4th of July, are two of my favorite days of the year. Um, you know, outside of family birthdays and things like that. But um, anyway, we're here today to, to reflect on how the principles of the Declaration of Independence have influenced American foreign policy. Uh, those principles or foundational ideas, uh, literally first things from the Latin, not only had a deep influence uh, on the framing of the Constitution, but reflected a core political philosophy, if you will, that shaped the American sense of justice, both domestically and abroad in the world. And let me emphasize uh, the most important purpose of these fundamental principles. Um, that is, they were meant to provide guides, so to speak, that would allow statesmen to fulfill the overarching ends of foreign policy, security and justice, justice to our own citizens and our own nation, and justice to foreign nations and peoples as well. So to help us start to see the connection between American foreign policy and the Declaration of Independence, uh, I'm going to start by saying that uh, the American Revolution uh, involved more than just the legal separation of the United States from Great Britain. It was at its core, I believe, 
an ideological movement informed by ideas that reflected what Thomas Jefferson called the American mind. The Declaration of Independence is the summary statement of these ideas upon which the political character of our nation was established. It was not written simply to justify our separation from Great Britain. Rather, the principles contained in it were intended to serve as guides for future statesmen, legislators, public officers, to help them promote justice, again, as much as possible in both domestic and foreign policy. The political philosophy of the founding, shaped by social compact theory, among other things, provided a general framework of thought within which statesmen could select upon deliberation our particular actions toward other nations. But more importantly, that political philosophy as expressed in the Declaration of Independence provided what I call a set of maxims, a kind of moral code that should remind Americans of what justice demands of them in their relations with and actions toward other nations. So the first basic maximum that you might identify uh, a foreign policy derived from the principles of the Declaration of Independence is this. The American people have a right to domestic sovereignty or political independence. This means not only the right to assert and establish political independence, but the right to do those things we believe necessary to preserve and defend that independence. This is derived from the first paragraph, really the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, which says that a people may sever the political bands which have connected them to another and assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station. What is really radical, by the way, about this statement uh, is that political independence is justified not on the traditional ground of sort of mutual consent by other sovereign nations, which is a view that stretches back to the, West, the Peace of Westphalia, even back to the sort of traditional law of nations, but instead on the ground of natural right, or as the Declaration puts it, by the laws of nature and of nature's God. However, if you notice the language of the first paragraph, this right to political independence is not claimed exclusively on behalf of Americans. In fact, the word Americans appears nowhere in the language of the first paragraph. This is a universal right, the right of one people, as the Declaration says. That means that it's a reciprocal right. And the United States, in claiming this right for ourselves during the revolution, in turn, must recognize and respect this right in others. And this leads to the second basic maxim of founding era foreign policy. The United States should respect the equal right of other nations to political independence. Now for foreign, uh, sorry, founding era uh, statesmen, these two first maxims really form the basis of the American sense of justice among nations. On the one hand, these principal maxims justified the government of the United States in doing those things necessary for the preservation of our independence. And on the other hand, provided a kind of break or check, if you will, on our foreign policy actions so that we would not unnecessarily, that is unjustly, infringe on the equal right of other nations to political independence. However, this second maxim is qualified somewhat by the third maxim of foreign policy. So in the Declaration of Independence, after declaring that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, it claims that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. This claim places a moral obligation upon our government to secure the unalienable rights of American citizens. And this is the third principled maxim of American foreign policy. And to most effectually secure these rights, a government needs the liberty and discretion to choose and to do those things necessary for that security. In other words, it must maintain its own political independence. And that's the fourth basic maxim of founding era foreign policy. Maintaining one's own national independence is not just a right, but in fact is a moral duty incumbent upon our government. Now, the third and fourth maxims here form the basis of our nation's right and duty to defend itself and the right to choose for itself what things we think are necessary to satisfy our defense and our security. And through the Declaration of Independence, these rights and these duties are elevated to the level of justice. For government to abrogate this duty or be negligent in it is equivalent to an act of injustice toward our own citizens. Sometimes, however, the right and duty of self-defense may come in 
conflict with that second maxim, which says that the United States should respect the right of independence of other nations as a matter of justice. However, in the founding era understanding of justice in, with regard to foreign policy, the right and duty of self-defense takes precedence over that duty of respecting the independence of others. This means that the second maxim must be qualified a bit to say that the United States should respect the equal right of other nations to political independence unless the maintenance of our own security and independence demands otherwise. Now, there are other corollary maxims that follow from these basic uh, four that we've laid out here. And they deserve mention, uh, I think, for example, the United States should uh, uh, maintain a footing of preparedness uh, to deal with foreign threats. The United States should avoid giving just cause of war to foreign nations. Uh, peaceful means uh, to resolve uh, conflicts or potential conflicts should be preferred, uh, but governments in the end must resort to force uh, when it becomes necessary for our security. Uh, after all, if you think about the great seal of the United States, I think it's symbolic of this last sort of corollary maxim uh, with the head of the eagle facing the, the olive branches of peace, right? And the talons of the eagle uh, in, in sort of normal times, except when we're actually in a state of war. But it's really this, uh, the conflict between um, maintaining our own dependence and um, respecting the right of other nations that gets a little bit sticky sometimes in our foreign policy. Um, Throughout our history, there have been many instances uh, in which these two principled maxims seem to be in conflict and required careful deliberation and prudence on the part of American statesmen, just to name a few examples, uh, the challenges facing James Monroe and John Quincy Adams in the early 1800s on whether to intervene in the independence movements uh, in the Western Hemisphere, um, the decision whether to intervene in Cuba uh, in 1898, uh, whether to intervene and occupy the Philippines after the Spanish-American War, and even more recently, the sort of uh, occupation of Iraq after 2005, uh, I think reveal the challenge that foreign policy decision makers face of balancing the, the demands of national security with respecting the sovereignty and independence of foreign peoples. So let me just Take a step back here for a second and ask uh, something you may already have asked yourself. Uh, why, why do these foreign policies matter? Uh, why do these foreign policy principles matter? Uh, after all, the world is a very nasty place or tends to be a nasty place. And we don't necessarily have the luxury of gazing at the clouds while threats continue to develop and emerge. And I would say the first answer to that is that these principles are meant to give us pause, even if just a slight pause. Uh, to consider the justice of our actions as we formulate the best means uh, to do our security. Uh, in other words, as we consider our particular actions, uh, these principles serve as a reminder that our, our, over, our overarching goal in foreign policy is to live up to the demands of our American sense of justice at home and abroad. History is full of examples of kings and governments that neglect both, either or both. Uh, either by not taking the necessary measures to secure their citizens and nation, or by engaging in unnecessary wars of conquest on the pure grounds of power. The American sense of justice uh, in foreign policy, on the other hand, sought to combine the necessary pursuit of self-interest and self-security with an awareness and concern for the equal rights of all nations. As George Washington put it in his farewell address, we as a nation should choose war, sorry, should choose peace or war, as our interest guided by justice shall counsel. As important as these principles are, uh, it must be said that they are no substitute for prudence, that is good judgment in foreign policy matters. Principles provide useful guides for pointing us toward the, the, um, the pursuit of these ends, but they do not prescribe the specific choice of necessary means, when, where, and how to act. The art of statesmanship requires prudence in the selection of the best means among possible means to attain these principled ends of foreign policy. And the American founders understood the need, therefore, for, for discretion on the part of statesmen in the selection of means to fulfill our foreign policy principles. And this, I think, is very much reflected in the powers, that is, duties and responsibilities that are vested in the government of the United States by the Constitution. Uh, now, if you've read the debates at the Constitutional Convention, you know that there was actually relatively little said about foreign policy. 
Um, although some prominent delegates, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, for example, uh, later wrote extensively about justice among nations and even how the constitution would promote the principal demands of justice in our foreign policy. Publius in the Federalist Essays also emphasizes how the Constitution would better promote national security and justice at the same time. First, for example, the constitutional arrangement of powers between the legislative and executive branches makes it more difficult for our government to engage, not, not entirely impossible, but, but less likely perhaps for our government to engage the United States in wars for unjust causes, but still is meant to allow for enough energy and discretion to deal effectively with foreign policy threats. The Constitution does vest essential foreign policy powers in Congress for clearing war, raising armies, for example, and in the president as commander in chief of the armed forces. But uh, the Constitution is otherwise rather vague um, over, um, with regard to foreign policy powers. This leaves the Constitution open to debate over whether Congress or the president has sort of supreme control or is, is you know, really in charge of, of, for, of directing foreign policy, formulating and directing foreign policy. And this debate actually became rather heated almost immediately after ratification of the Constitution when uh, President Washington issued the Proclamation of Neutrality in 1793. Alexander Hamilton, writing in the newspapers as Pacificus, uh, argued that the president has a very high degree of independence and discretion when it comes to formulating and executing foreign policy. James Madison, uh, writing on the other hand as, as Helvidius argued that, uh, that the formulation of foreign policy should involve more interaction and collaboration between Congress and the president, at least in sort of painting the broad strokes of, uh, of our ends in foreign policy. Um, and in Madison's understanding, this constitutional arrange, arrangement should allow for both deliberation that is about the justice of our actions and the best choice of means to satisfy justice and also the energy and appropriate degree of discretion on the part of the president in implementing those means. And so by combining both deliberation and energy, the constitution should better fulfill the principal demands of justice by providing both for the common defense uh, and, and securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity as the preamble to the constitution says. So uh, I'll kind of conclude here, I guess, by raising one last question, um, which you again may already have asked yourself. Uh, are these principles still relevant today? And uh, in general, though arguably with some important exceptions, uh, US foreign policy actions were guided uh, and influenced by these fundamental principles well into the late 19th century. Uh, around the time of the Spanish-American War, uh, a new political philosophy uh, espoused by progressives at the time, especially progressive intellectuals uh, emerged and in many ways challenged the political philosophy of the American founder, which in turn had a profound impact on how we as Americans started to think about foreign policy. Now how this comes about is a rather long story, but in short, uh, both fundamental maxims, the, the, the um, the, the first two fundamental maxims, the, the, the you know, high moral uh, responsibility of, of doing those things necessary to secure our interests and our security, and the right to respect the independence of other nations. Both of these um, were challenged by important progressive uh, political figures and intellectuals, and I would say especially by uh, Woodrow Wilson, who wrote extensively on these things. This new political philosophy emphasized the immorality of pursuing one's own interests and substituted instead the idea that the highest, most noble end of American foreign policy should be altruistic in nature, aimed at benefiting other peoples around the world, even if it meant governing them without their consent, but for their own good. Now, the lingering effect of this uh, inversion of, of priorities, if you will, uh, has been the tendency, I think, in the last 70 years or so for presidents to, to try to justify U.S. foreign policy actions on the grounds that they both, uh, they combine both the pursuit of American security interests with the simultaneous promotion of the good of others. So at the same time they help us, they benefit others. And that's sort of become 
the mode in which we've, we start to think about what, what a just foreign policy action looks like. And so I think we've actually tended to think about foreign policy uh, in the last 70 years or so, uh, in light of a kind of confused melding of founding era and progressive era political philosophies. And, and I'll just end, I guess, here by suggesting that this is another reason why I think it's good for us to be reminded about and, and to think about the foreign policy thought of the American founders as it was grounded in, in their own political philosophy. So I'll end there. Thank you very much. And I'm really looking forward to any questions. Thanks very much. That was a fascinating presentation. Terrific, on point, And we appreciate your taking the time to do it. I'm going to assert the host prerogative and uh, ask one or two questions of you right off the bat. I thought it was a, just very trenchant. I, I was going over the uh, declaration with my students the other day and I was just struck again, particularly in the second paragraph, how it's such a concise statement of a politics that's suitable for the human person. What we are, it almost tells us what we are as human persons. It takes Aristotle's axiom that we are political animals, social animals, and then it says that means we have these rights, and then it self-evident rights, and then it goes from there to lay out some uh, foundational political principles. The Constitution, though, kind of seems to think, if you especially if you read it in the context of the Federalist Papers, the Constitution seems to be more interested in the bad parts of human nature, in preventing what we might do to each other if we become factionalized and all the rest. Uh, and then you bring in the part about the progressives, which is extremely important. I'm sure you know Walter McDougall's book, Promised Land, Crusader State. And he mm -hmm. described that inflection point between the 19th and the 20th centuries, as you do at the Spanish-American War, where we become, uh, where we change from a country where the universalizing impulse, the desire to go spread our ideals was there, but it was suppressed, it was inhibited, it was restrained to after the Spanish-American War, as you point out with Woodrow Wilson, we become more bent on going out and spreading these ideals for the good of mankind and the good of people in the world. I wanna talk about a couple of things. First of all, can the, ask you to talk about a couple of things. Can the constitution accommodate the tension between that original desire, desire for universalization, but a strong conservatism where we were built, we were concerned about nation building and that restrained the impulse to go abroad with idealism and the subsequent Wilsonian and post-Wilsonian impulse to spread the goods of the Declaration of Independence, to put it in one particular way, to, to really universalize, to operationalize. Can the Constitution accommodate that? And then, just to make it harder for you, I think one of the most under-examined under speeches of the 20th century was Dwight Eisenhower's going away speech, his departure speech right before Kennedy's uh, inauguration in which he warned of the problems of the military industrial complex, the power that it had gained just in a short time after World War II. And he said, we have to have this. There's no getting around it. We can't do without it, but it presents big problems for it and hearkened back to the Federalist Papers and the concerns about a standing army and how we would control that. But he also warned against a scientific technical elite. Don't hear that much about that part of the speech. Okay. And we seem to have gone very much in the direction of being governed by that kind of an elite as well. I guess I just want to ask you, can the Constitution handle all that? Two competing sets of political principles, the original principles and progressive principles, and a limited government constitution for the 19th century that now has to handle the need for a very, very large national security state and a state that's interventionist and a government that's interventionist in a lot of other ways. And the questions are already building up, I'll tell you. So uh, I'll ask you to be as concise you can as you can with what would be three or four books worth of an answer to, to get that right. Thank you. Yeah, well, well thank, thank you, Dr. Wood, uh, uh, for, for that question and your thoughts on this. Um, I, I did want to comment, and maybe it's by way of to, to answer your, your larger question here, go back to your statement about how the Constitution in many ways was, was oriented toward um, uh, or, or founded on a kind of understanding of, of uh, the negative aspects of human nature. And I'd like to just point out, and I'm sure you're familiar with this from Federalist number 55, James Madison acknowledges that. Uh, I think it's the end of 55 when he writes uh, something about paraphrasing a little bit. There is a, as there is a degree of depravity among mankind that warrants our distrust. But there is also, I think he says, uh, a certain degree of 
there are certain other qualities in human nature that I think, and again, I'm paraphrasing and adding a little bit here, that, um, that make it possible for us to have a, a certain degree of virtue uh, and actually act in a, in a kind of just way. So um, I think the constitution was framed in part to allow for us to do the things that are necessary to fulfill the ends of the Declaration of Independence, right? The security and the protection of rights and, and the things that government must do, but, but to sort of, again, provide checks, to provide uh, obstacles uh, that would prevent human beings who do display that degree of depravity, to use Madison's term, right, in office, and want to use the power of government to engage in unjust things, either domestically or abroad. Madison says, I think that there, that's not a guarantee, by the way, the constitution doesn't guarantee that those things will never happen. But just having a realistic understanding of human nature means we need to provide sort of built-in checks or breaks, if you will, uh, to make that more difficult. Um, so, so I do think in that sense, by the way, the constitution can embrace both, I'll just say sort of pre-progressive and, and the post-progressive approach to foreign policy. Um, but, but I think in order for us to um, sort of uh, interpret the Constitution broadly enough to, uh, to justify the use or the, the, the formulation of foreign policy to satisfy the ends of progressive thought, right? The more uh, you know, melioristic and altruistic ends of foreign policy. I really do think you have to separate the Constitution from the political philosophy of the founding and the principles in the declaration. And I'm sure you're probably aware of this, you know, but if you, if, you know, if you read the, the thinkers on this at the time, the progressive thinkers and, you know, Woodrow Wilson, again, uh, being an intellectual himself wrote a lot on this. There was a very conscious effort, I think, to separate the constitution from the principles of the declaration. That is to make the argument that the, that the declaration doesn't really, or shouldn't really inform our understanding of the Constitution and the ends laid out uh, in, in the Constitution and especially in the preamble. So there's a very conscious attempt, I think, to separate the Constitution from that political philosophy of the founding. Yeah, thanks very much. Let's start with the questions from the audience and I'll read these as they've come up uh, in various formats here. Um, a question, do the anti-federalists, particularly Brutus, have any specific arguments against American foreign policy powers? or about them one way or the other, I guess we can broaden the question. The anti-federalists are always interested in me. I don't know them as well as I want to. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any instances in the anti-federalist literature in which that took a, a front seat in their arguments. I'm sure it's there, um, um, but, but I, I don't think it played a, it wasn't, it wasn't a very big part of, it wasn't a very prominent uh, aspect of their sort of overarching attempt to, point out how all of the, these sort of problems that they identified in the constitution would somehow come together and form, um, or if not established, would lead to a kind of despotic government at home. So I'm struggling to think of any specific passages from Brutus or any of the other more prominent anti-federalists. Okay. But I, I, do, but I will say, I, I will say this, they, they, they were concerned with regard to commercial treaties, yeah. not so much with regard to war, they were concerned that the kinds of commercial treaties that the United States would negotiate with foreign powers would be, would be um, partial to particular states and therefore not beneficial to the union as a whole. So there is some aspect of that. Okay, great, good, good answer. Um, what might the founding fathers, particularly Washington, think of Kennedy's statement in the, I believe it was his inaugural address that we would support any friend, defeat any foe to advance to to ensure the success of freedom was, I think, his wording. How would you think they would have responded to that? And that, again, is that attempt, it's, it comes right after Eisenhower's speech that I had talked about, where Eisenhower is warning about the national security state and scientific administrative state. And now Kennedy comes along a few days later with this extraordinary, almost Wilsonian kind of a speech. I don't think we'd hear the likes of that again until George Bush's 2005 second inaugural. Right. Yeah. And thanks for reminding me, uh, Dr. Wood, that I didn't really address your, your point about Eisenhower. This is a good point to do it. No, sorry. I wasn't trying to slip one in on you. Just No, no, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's a great question. And I meant to talk about it, but this is great. We can do this in the context of, of Kennedy's speech. So, so Eisenhower, I think, is, is between, uh, especially at the beginning of the Cold War, as you know, 
uh, starting under Truman, uh, but then especially under Eisenhower, there is this growth of a kind of foreign policy bureaucracy that starts to gain much more influence uh, over the foreign policy decision-making uh, that, that really prior to World War II had rested principally on the, the shoulders of the president and his sort of closest circle of advisors. And with, as, as, we, as we know, uh, you know, when a bureaucracy is born, uh, it tends to grow and grow and grow, and it constantly finds more and more reasons to justify its existence, which means it needs to you know, take on greater roles of importance. So I do think that when uh, Eisenhower is addressing this concern, what, it, what I think he's getting at in a way is that the you know, bureaucracies may be good, I say maybe, good at gathering data and compiling data, uh, you know, formulating sort of strategies or policies based on the data they've gathered. But bureaucracies don't tend to consider moral questions. Um, those are sort of the intangibles, right? That aren't necessarily necessarily quantifiable. So yeah, no, I think exactly right. They by nature yeah. they uh, avoid moral questions. They, That's right. They they have a morality, but they claim that it's neutral. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's right. In fact, uh, really, the architect of the modern bureaucratic state or administrative state, as some call it, Woodrow Wilson, I would say, you know, says that specifically. We want we don't want administrators to make moral judgments. We want to give them a task, and they should do it. Uh, without any bias or partisanship or anything, right? So no sort of, you know, no no making of moral judgment. So uh, in in the aftermath of that great Eisenhower speech, which I, I just really find uh, amazing and really important, when I when Kennedy makes these really broad claims, uh, first of all, that's that's dangerous rhetoric. I think Washington would say um, it may have been necessary to say such things. Uh, to bolster morale um, around the world uh, and to bolster the, the belief of our uh, allies in Europe that, that the United States was still fully on board with, with, um, with the Cold War and, and dealing with the threat of the Soviet Union. But uh, I think Washington, since you asked what Washington would think, would say that's, that's overreach. And not just overreach in the sense that it's really not possible. I mean, literally, it's not possible. We don't actually have the means or resources to do what Kennedy says we ought to do. Um, although that doesn't stop Kennedy and his and his and the bureaucracy, right, from formulating a an overall strategy, uh, you know, in flexible response uh, to actually try to carry that out. But it's it's overreach in the sense that it also, again, ignores whether or not the the you know to 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 defend any nation assumes that we have the right to do that. And I think Washington would say we need to ask ourselves, uh, you know. Rather than say we just need to def help defend any nation from the threat of communism, what we need to stop and we need to stop and ask ourselves first of all is that is that intervention really necessary? Is it necessary for our security? And and then also you know weigh the the, the question of justice here, which is if by intervening um, uh, sort of unnecessarily, are we not in fact infringing on uh, you know, some sort of right that these people have to, you know, to govern themselves. There's always that danger, right? When we intervene in a place, for, even for the sake of national security, um, that, that we sort of slip into sort of taking over uh, and governing. That's, I think, Washington would say that's a, that's a danger we need to be aware of. I want to slip another question in based on that. Um, is there a contradiction between saying there are certain universal human truths identified in the Declaration about self-evident natural rights, and saying simultaneously, and it sounds like you're kind of pointing Washington in this direction, there may be places where those universals are not ready to be realized in the American way. In other words, they're not very they're ready to be implemented culturally in the American way, or their people might choose to implement the universals in a different way. Is there a contradiction there? Yeah, no, um, I don't think there is. I think this is a great point that you're raising, though. Um, uh, but I would say Washington might respond with all the more reason not to intervene in certain places and impose, um, you know, sort of American principles, American political principles, American governmental principles on, on various peoples. One, it's a matter of right that we not do that. But two, it's also uh, maybe there's a practical reason why we shouldn't do that. Now, and I don't think you were, I don't, you're not, you weren't suggesting this, Dr. Wood, I don't think, but but interestingly enough, when the progressive intellectuals come along, they take that kind of argument and twist it a little bit to say, there are in fact peoples around the world that are not 
uh, historically advanced and civilized, and they're not ready for self-government. But they would say, all the more reason that we need to go in and govern them <laughs> and right. help them become civilized, right? Exactly. And I think that that argument, you know, it really reveals itself, I think, with regard to the debates over the Philippines in the in, in 1900 or so. You've got some no, great questions. That's the difference. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, got, I, I don't want to cut you off. I, was just, I think questions. that really is, illustrates the difference in the principled approaches to foreign policy taken by Washington and the founders and progressive intellectuals or leaders, uh, on the other hand. That's very good. Very good answer, set of answers for you. Several comments uh, or questions lined up here from the, Dr. Jack Tierney, who's at the, our institute. I believe the Truman administration best combined both aspects of power and progress, in quotes, in modern U.S. history. Am I far off? Or I guess you'd say, would you agree? I don't know how much time you spend on the Truman administration. but uh... Well, I, I, when I think of this is a great question. Thank you for the question. I, when I think of the Truman administra administration with regard to foreign policy, I, I almost have to think there are sort of two phases of Truman. Um, the early Truman, as the Cold War was emerging and we started to assess whether or not there's a threat there and actually really just sort of try to figure out what is going on here, right? Is the Soviet Union really a threat? Uh, Tr Truman um, took some very bold actions um, at the advice of his sort of immediate circle of advisors. And they really did, I think, try to think these questions through uh, very carefully, like where to intervene, when to intervene, so we know Korea and, and some other places. Um, but, then, but then there's the sort of second phase of Truman's administration where um, with, uh, you know, the creation of NSC 68 uh, and these sorts of things, you really do see, I think, under Truman, the emergence of what Eisenhower was, you know, later referring to as this great bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the later Truman uh, tended to defer to the, 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 the overarching strategies that, that, uh, that NSC was putting forth. And I think you do see at the end of Truman's administration, a decline in that kind of statesmanlike prudence, moral judgment, if you want to put it that way. And I don't want to be too hard on Truman because he was in a tough spot, I know. But um, I think in some of his earlier actions, he displayed this kind of statesmanlike prudence that, um, that, that does remind us of the kinds of things that Washington had to deal with and John Quincy Adams and, and Theodore Roosevelt and, and others. So I hope that answers the question. I'm not sure that it does. I think it does. This comes up a lot with my students or with the folks who are interested in IWP. Did the discussion of foreign policy and the founding and related documents address the need for or the dangers of government engaging in secret intelligence operations? There's not much about that in the Constitution, as I can tell. You can also, some of the broad powers that are given to the executive are construed to allow a lot of different things. But uh, as far as you know, was there any much consideration of secret activity, secret foreign policy activity at the time of the uh, founding, the time of the Constitution, or was written? Well, intel intelligence is not my spe my specialization, but uh, my sense is that there's probably much more of that going on than we even know. Uh, that's even probably recorded, and um, so I'll, I'll I'll try to answer that this in this way. Uh, you don't find the power to engage in that sort of intelligence uh, gathering, even espionage, in the Constitution, um, which raises the question, why is it not there? Um, and my first response would be, well, because that looks bad. <laughs> it's, or to some people, that might look bad, right? Because here we are claiming to be a nation that wants other, we, we claim we're going to engage in sort of above board, you know, justice, if you will, and and we, we want other nations to emulate us. And, and it might look bad to say that we're going to engage in this sort of it, it, an old world practice, if you will, right? Which, um, so, so there's a, I think there's, a, there's a, a purpose, a reason that it's not there. Now, on the other hand, if you ask somebody like Alexander Hamilton, and probably not just Hamilton, Washington, um, they, I think Hamilton, for example, would say, come on, that power is there. Whether it's, list, whether it's stated in the constitution or not, that is just one of those sort of fundamental intrinsic powers that all governments must have for the purpose of securing, providing for their security. I mean, a nation that doesn't engage in espionage and intelligence work and these sorts of things is, is, setting, itself, is setting itself up for, con for being conquered and, and defeated. And, and so, I, you know, I think there is room for that in this. And I also, if I can just mention quickly, I don't want to talk too much um, or let my answers get too long here. 
if you look, there are in fact early examples. We know Washington himself engaged in some of this during the Revolutionary War. Um, during the, 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 the wars or the conflicts with um, the Barbary kingdoms in the late part, um, or early part of the 1800s especially, uh, we know that James Madison as Secretary of State actually authorized um, uh, sort of under the table, I'm not sure if that's the right phrase or not, but, but you know, sort of operations, intelligence gathering operations, uh, clandestine negotiations uh, with, with officials um, and even engaged or attempted to engage um, in, in, a, in toppling a, a regime, uh, I believe it was um, Tripoli, right? And engage in, in uh, tri uh, toppling the, uh, the um, uh, uh, I don't know what the term was, the, the Pasha or something in Tripoli, right? And, and so there, and there was actually a, a, a sort of a, a, a organized or orchestrated effort by the United States to, to pull off a coup, <laughs> right? So we know these things actually did take place, and and whether they're not in the constitution, whether they're in the constitution explicitly or not, I think everybody sort of understood that this is just something nations must do um, for purposes of their security. By the way, if I just mentioned really quickly, uh, I think one of the best books on this, and this is where I I, I first learned of this, is a book by Patrick Garrity uh, called um, "In Search of Monsters to Destroy." If anybody's familiar with it, uh, he goes into great detail. Uh, Talking about this this whole you know how did how they were dealing with the the, the Tripoli or the, the Barbary kingdoms and some some very sort of un, uh, I don't know if you want to call them extra constitutional but uh, some some very sort of clandestine ways. Okay, thanks. That's very helpful. Um, we have one question that I'm going to try to reword a little bit. This is a variation on on the problem of is the Constitution still capable of doing? Does it permit a government that's capable of doing what we need to do? And the, the essence is, you know, time and space have changed in some ways. Uh, the oceans aren't the don't provide the distance that they once did or the same number of miles, but the distance is much easier to get across. Uh, weapons move much more quickly. Communications and anti-communications, cyber activities, cyber attacks move much more quickly. Um, you can imagine that, you know, we do establish procedures and we give different departments powers to do things necessary to deal with these issues. but with that kind of change in how time and space are, are relevant, can the Constitution accommodate that? Are we, do we need a different form of government that's going to be able to somehow, are we, are we even, I would ask you this, do we even need a different set of goods to pursue than the mm. Constitution itself was intended to uh, pursue? That is a great question. And, and, and again, I think this is... Uh, this again reveals, I think, the actual usefulness of these fundamental principles in the declaration I was describing, because they're very broad. And I don't, I don't know that we, I think they're broad enough and flexible enough or universal enough, maybe is a better term, that they can still apply. I still, I still think that our fundamental principles ought to be both security and justice. I, I don't, you know, the world has become much nastier and dangerous, as you say, in many ways, technology has changed. Um, uh, and the world has grown smaller, um, but but I don't I don't I don't know that that requires us to jettison jet, us to jettison concerns about justice. Now, what that might mean is that we are engaging in many more um, different means, and maybe we're intervening more often, and we're you know we have to really um, prioritize the the fundamental duty of promoting our security over respecting the rights uh, the right to independence of other nations much more frequently but i still think those principles can apply and i i think that means also that the constitution is still uh, applicable and i do think in some ways flexible enough um i think in some ways the the modern presidency has has stretched the constitution quite a bit uh i don't I mean, I can think of some ways in which I think there are sort of uh, questions of the constitutionality of, of the way things work. But generally speaking, the Constitution has done a pretty good job of allowing um, the, the president and, um, and the executive branch to, to deal, to, to identify threats, to, to formulate responses to those threats, and to deal with them, um, you know, not perfectly, but, but generally. Uh, so I think the Constitution is flexible enough. I'll just, for example, I'll just give one example. Um, uh, we know that after the after the turn of the 20th century, uh, 
the president took on a much greater role in terms of directing, I think, both domestic policy or, or influencing domestic policy and in foreign policy. And I think the Spanish-American War played a big role in giving the president much more authority in foreign, foreign policy. Um, and in the course of the 20th century, the presidency has become considered, has become considered, come to be considered the most important branch by many, many people, right? Americans tend to say, you know, the president will do this, the president can do that, and so on and so forth. So, and it's true that the president has taken on a greater, much greater degree of, of power and, uh, and influence in these things. And, I, and, I, and my point in, in, in this is to suggest that that's probably necessary that that happened in order to deal with these ever-changing and, and you know, different kinds of threats and changes in technology and, and these sorts of yeah. things. It's probably a good thing that the president has taken on this role. I don't know that that's extra constitutional, and I don't know that that is a, is a is, or unconstitutional. Uh, I don't know that that's a contradiction of the fundamental principles of the Declaration either. No, I was just going to ask you in a very sharp way, um, what you're saying is correct. presidential power has expanded. A lot of discussion about that. The founders and the, uh, even in the Federalist Papers, they talk about wanting an energetic government yeah. that would seem to require a strong executive as well. But when right. you go beyond it into what we've seen in the last 70 years, uh, and we call that constitutional, are we saying that we basically destroyed the Constitution in order to save it? Yeah, that's a great, again, you have a knack for putting these things really <laughs> nicely. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, look, there, I, I don't know that we've destroyed it. I think we have stretched it maybe to its limits. I mean, maybe this, that, if you think of it as a balloon, it's, it's stretched pretty thin. Um, I think that there is some, as you suggest in the Federalists, like take Alexander Hamilton's argument, for example, I think Alexander Hamilton would say, this is, you know, the way the president acts with this kind of energy uh, in taking the lead and really sort of claiming um, uh, uh, prominence in, in, in formulating foreign policy and directing foreign policy. Uh, somebody like Alexander Hamilton might say, you know, that's, I called it, I called it 200 years ago. It just took a while for us to realize the necessity of doing this. So I think it would depend on which founder you ask, for example, if, uh, you know, whether this, whether this constitution is, is, um, is still working the way it ought to or, or, or not. So. Oh, we will have a time for a couple more questions while I wait for those to see if anybody else has any. I wanna ask you one that I warned you about. Um, you know, the constitution does, and the declaration more than the Constitution, but the Constitution, they both seem to assume a certain set of aspects about the human person. There's been a lot of criticism in the last few years about the liberal principles that underlie uh, the American Declaration in particular, and the, the, if you will, the anthropological assumptions about what it is to be a person. Did the founders get it wrong or right in terms of liberalism and in terms of the emphasis on the individual versus the collective or the individual as an isolated atom versus the social needs of the individual? That's my question number one. And question number two, given the absolutely extraordinary growth of the United States since the time of the founding, could any document be expected to do any better than what the Constitution has done so far? That's a lot of blue sky speculation open for you. <laughs> That's a big question. It's an important question, though. Um, I, I tend to think that the founders got it right. And I didn't think that necessarily um, when I was much younger. Um, it, it, ironically, maybe you know, ironically in a sense, I had to go through a period of learning to appreciate the Anti-Federalists. I didn't know, I always had read the Federalists as though this is the, this is the scripture, right, on the meaning of the Constitution. And um, in teaching courses on the American founders over the years, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Gordon Lloyd, uh, who was a professor at Pepperdine, I had the honor of teaching him with him for a number of years, um, showed me the importance of, of reading what the Anti-Federalists were really concerned with in the Constitution. And I didn't realize that, that one of the, 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 the the problems that anti-federalists had was that they they were they foresaw the uh, the tendency of this constitution to produce um, 
you know, through sort of uh, nationalization or national, the centralization of, of, of uh, administration on the national level, a degradation uh, of, of uh, local morals, of mores, of uh, the importance of education on the local level, the family, civic virtue, and these sorts of things. And, and the reason, what I found um, enlightening about this is, first of all, I didn't know anti-federalists were that concerned about it, but, but that forced the federalists to make a kind of response. And the general response from federalists like James Madison and, and Alexander Hamilton was that the, that the constitution was not meant to replace those things. The, the, the creation of a national government as part of a federal system was meant to deal with these overarching concerns of the whole union. Um, I think in their minds, the, 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 the tendency over the last 200 years to move away from, from local things, the importance of local government, the importance of communities, the importance of, of, of you know, education, uh, that, that tendency really over the last 100 years, I do think is the result of very serious challenges to uh, fundamental American ideas uh, present at the time of the founding uh, by progressives. Now, I, I don't mean to say again that progressives, like the early progressives like Wilson and others would agree, would like the current state uh, uh, of civic virtue and education and, you know, and, and really important things concerning morality, but they opened the door. And I do really see a break from the founding ideas and the founding emphasis on civic virtue and these things in, in the progressives. So once they open the door, and in order to deal with, the, with what they see as new emerging changes um, uh, with you know, the rise of industrialization and things, what, in order to deal with those things, the progressives needed to justify expansive national government, right, with greater regulatory power. And in order to justify that, the progressives had to challenge the idea that the Constitution met what it said. And, what it said. and in order to do that, the progressives had to challenge the, the truth of these principled ideas of the American founding. And once they opened the door of what they themselves called historical relativity, what I think you've seen is over the 20th century, a kind of sliding, a really accelerated sliding away from those things as each phase of, in the 20th century, as each sort of phase of liberalism emerges, you see a greater and greater turn toward the national government as, as uh, you know, the great source of all good in the country and much less concern with keeping your own house in order, making, keeping your community in order, and really emphasizing the kinds of virtues that I think the founders, both Federalists and Anti-Federalists thought were important for Americans to have, especially in a republic. That's Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. And I'm gonna, it's gonna lead me back to my final question, but before we get to that, one question from the audience, which is what would the founding fathers have thought of the, the necessity and the desired end state of the Monroe Doctrine? And I guess to, to rephrase that a little bit from the excellent question, would they have seen the Monroe Doctrine, which was you know, kind of not really operationalized at the time that it was actually spoken by Monroe, that wasn't called the Monroe Doctrine until decades later, would they have seen though that claim, those claims that Monroe made, which basically made us a status quo power for the hemisphere, just don't change anything, no new colonies, quit messing around with colonies, uh, would the founders have seen that as the kind of break that we talked earlier about coming with progressivism and Woodrow Wilson? Or would they have seen that as incontinuity with what they were thinking about? I, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I do think that the Monroe Doctrine, if we're, you know, Monroe gets credit for it, John Quincy Adams behind the scenes is, you know, formulating these things. The, the Monroe Doctrine, as, it, as you rightly point out, as it came to be called later, really, you know, in the 18, um, after the 1870s, was, uh, it did, uh, it did, I don't know that it, it directly asserted American dominance over the Western Hemisphere in the sense that we were claiming the right to direct things in the Western Hemisphere and excluding European nations from having an influence in that. The way I read what, again, what we think of as the Monroe Doctrine is to say that, um, that we are telling European nations, uh, especially Russia, by the way, this is directly aimed at Russia, not just uh, you know, continent, the nations of Western Europe. 
we are telling them that um, we are uh, we would consider uh, attempts at recolonization to be a potential threat to our security. So we're so the Monroe Doctrine is justified on security grounds, right? That is our interest. But at the same time, I think what they're asserting is the right for uh, for peoples in the Western Hemisphere to to establish their own uh, uh, governments and, and to create their own nations. So in a way, I think it's meant the Monroe Doctrine is meant to be a shield to to allow that independence to peoples in the Western Hemisphere who are rising up and casting off their you know Spanish uh, colonial overlords and these sorts of things, and let them generally do that in their way, uh, because it's also, you know, part of the Monroe Doctrine, uh, a lot of people miss this part sort of tacked on at the end, is the assertion that the United States has no intention to interfere, intervene in these revolutions that are taking place, right? So I look at, so it may have come to be seen, and I did think, I do think that Theodore Roosevelt certainly saw the Monroe Doctrine this way, as an assertion of American hegemony, in the Western Hemisphere, but I don't know that that was the intent of uh, John Quincy Adams in in formulating that address, that speech. So, that's terrific. This is a last question for you. Excuse me. Um, you talked a little bit about growth of centralization, the fact that the government kind of replaces community and household. I'm I'm not taking you out of context or changing your words too much. Obviously, the great the great predictor of all of that, the great forecaster, was De Tocqueville. Uh, if you could restore one virtue as a predominant virtue in the American Republic, now, now we call it democracy, another change since uh, the time of progressivism. If you could restore one virtue today with hopeful political effects, what would that virtue be? I love that question. Because, but that's a tough question because uh, my inclination is to say two, but I'm, I'm going to resist. There are, no, go ahead and give two. I mean, you can't have one virtue without them all in one sense. Well, in a way, I, I'll say the, the, the one I think is, especially I go out here a little bit on a limb, in light of recent things going on uh, domestically, um, a reassertion of this kind of vigilant love of liberty. And by and I, by liberty, I mean sort of liberty properly understood. That is, uh, liberty in the sense that it's it, liberty doesn't mean the license to do anything you like, but that it, but that liberty means sort of acting reasonably, um, uh, free from unnecessary government regulation. Um, but but you know within within you know within the law uh, within within order. So a kind of uh, uh, Vigilant defense of, of of ordered liberty, if you want to use that phrase. I know many others use that phrase. Um, but but I would add to that. To, in order for that to, to be to work, I would add um, uh, not not just a, a love of liberty, but again, maybe a second virtue is a kind of self restraint <laughs> uh, on the part of individuals in 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 being free and 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 acting with liberty. We've got to be able to to sort of govern ourselves. Uh, in the sense that that you know when we claim rights for ourselves or, or liberty for ourselves, we need to respect that in others as well. And again, self-restraint in the sense that it doesn't mean that we're free to just do anything. Um, there has to be a kind of ordering to it. Now, again, for this to work, it requires education. I think the founding understanding was that these virtues would be inculcated on the local level. This is not the job of the national government necessarily to do this, but you know, on the local and state level, churches, schools communities, families, we're all meant to promote these virtues. And I think those are, uh, I don't want to say they're lost, but I, I see them, you know, wane. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, this has been a, been a terrific hour. I very much appreciate your time. I think you've done a wonderful job of reminding us that we have a constitution that is well worth celebrating, that we need to pay attention to more than just the rights it gives us, but the responsibilities it gives us as well, especially in your last answer, and that we, uh, if we have a responsibility and a need to cultivate both the goods that that constitution promises us and the political virtues that are necessary to, to keep those possible for us and for future generations. 
So thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, really a fine presentation. Thank, thank, thank you. you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both so much. What a wonderful way to acknowledge and honor Constitution Day for our country, which I, I, I realize is officially tomorrow when we, we recognize it and honor it today. So thank you both. And thank you so much to all the attendees for such thoughtful and intentional questions. I think that really elevated our conversation and I'm sure we're all, all leaving this with more to consider and think on. So I'd like to thank Dr. Burkett and Dr. Wood for joining us this evening and all of you who tuned in via Zoom and on Facebook Live as well. And if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of the graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. And again, our thanks to the Jack Miller Center for co-sponsoring the event tonight and to Ashland University for, uh, for Dr. Burkett's uh, participation. Thanks everyone. Have a great evening.